Well, good morning. Guess what? Oh, man. Okay, you know, you're supposed to say, what? Like you're excited. Now, it's okay. You can fake it if you need to. You had an extra hour of sleep. You can fake it if you need to. Let's try it again. Guess what? Oh, much better. The Broncos won't lose today. Yeah, because they don't play, right? But... See, some of you didn't know that. You cheered like, yeah, Broncos are going to win. And, oh, wait a minute. That's because they don't play. But, okay, really this time as it relates to the message, I promise. Guess what? We're down to our last two parables. Can you believe it in this series? Yeah, ten down. Well, next week will be our tenth, and then we'll break and do something for Christmas. Ten down and about 30 more to go. But uh, we won't take all 40 at a time. The plan is to break those up over the next several years. We'll come back to uh, for a period over the next few years until we hit them all. But um, this week and next, we have before us a couple of very, very unique parables as we conclude the the present series on parables. Uh, Not many or any really quite like either of them. And... As we shall see, these parables talk about everybody's favorite topic in church, money. Wow. All right. You can say hooray, and you can fake it if you want to. You ready? We're going to talk about money the next two weeks. All right. It's not, it wasn't as good as your what, but, the, you know, that's okay. And I know you pull... Pull any number of pastors, pick any number of pastors that you want, and I'll bet all of them, I'll bet all of them would list money on a very short list of topics they don't like to talk about very much in church. Fact of the matter is, we need to talk about money if we're going to talk about the teachings of Jesus. We can't avoid it. Because, here's another guess what, when you add up all the topics that Jesus covers in the Gospels, guess which topic he talks about the most out of any other? Take a wild guess. Money, even more than love, George. Money is his number one topic. Now, if Jesus is going to talk about money more than anything else, then maybe we should talk about it too, even embrace talking about it. And you know, I, I imagine that we can all understand a pastor's reluctance to talk about money in church. I feel a little bit this morning, but I've, I've never had too hard a time talking about people's money because, after all, I used to be a lawyer. But um, the reluctance, the reluctance when it comes for me, the reluctance when it comes for me is I'm very sensitive maybe overly sensitive to that one great criticism, right, of the church and those who maybe are here for the first time especially, that stereotype of the church when it comes to money, what's the great criticism, right? All they want is our money. And so I'm sensitive to that criticism this morning, but, but less so, I suppose, when I studied this topic this week. Because you know what? Hey, that's good. (laughs) Um, In a way, that criticism is correct. 
Now, it's not the only thing that the church wants. Of course not. But the church does want and does need money. It's very important. It's a very important piece of our might that God gives us to help carry out the mission that the church has been given. The mission to bring the kingdom of God to a world that is desperate for it. And, and here's another thing. You know, I, God wants all our money, not just 10%. Did you know? So wait a minute. Bible says to tithe, and I know God gives that as a guideline, at least in terms of money that we physically you know, might hand over. But at its depth, at its heart, he wants it all, every last penny. And you say, how can I say that? Well, you're very familiar with Shema. We've been teaching it, the first and second greatest commandment from Jesus. And in that commandment, as you know, God says, I want you to love me with all your heart, all your soul, and all all your might. And believe me, and you know this, money, our stuff, but money in particular is a huge part of our might, isn't it? Might being what can influence things and get things done. And money can indeed influence a lot and can get things done. It is indeed a part of our might, and God says it right there in what he calls the greatest commandment. He wants us to love him with all our might, every penny. So, let's not be ashamed or awkward when talking about money in church. It's a blessing. It's a gift that God gives us to manage for Him for the short time that we're here in life before it becomes useless in the next age. We'll talk about that this morning. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about money. Your Bibles are open, I hope, to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, please turn there if I forgot to ask you to. Luke chapter 16, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account for your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. Historians tell us about three years of the average worker's wages. It's a lot. The manager told him, 
take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied, about seven and a half years of wages. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and who is ever dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much." So you, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the very Word of God. Amen? Amen. Now, one thing every scholar agrees on that I've come across this week is that this parable is one of the most, if not the most, perplexing of all the parables of Jesus a bewildering number of explanations exist. And in fact, there's, no, there's really no consensus concerning the meaning and message of this parable. Literally, dozens of explanations. And even when I try to boil them all down, it's like, okay, come on, some of them have to relate to each other. How, can I, how many different takes can there be? I couldn't get, I couldn't get down to fewer than 16 significantly different takes on this parable of Jesus. I've not seen anything like it really in any Bible study I've been a part of or anything that I've studied or undertaken on my own to look into, into the Scriptures. So I tell you that, I tell you that because you know any pastor, any teacher you go to when they teach, by definition when they're teaching, especially when it's interpretation, they're going to bring some of their own opinion on what it is that's being said. And I feel that burden especially heavy this morning. I'm going to humbly give you my take, one man's opinion based on research this week, but my opinion is, is of course, since I'm the one preaching, is the one I'm going to leave you with. But please, I encourage you, you should go ahead and check out what others say about this parable as well, because believe me, there are a lot of other takes on it than what I'm going to share with you this morning. Mine, of course, is the best take, but (laughs) just kidding. Um, Well, the reason, maybe you caught it, the reason this parable has confounded so many over the centuries is the shock it delivers by lifting up and glorifying the shady actions of this manager or steward. 
at the expense of his master's trust. Unbeknownst to him, he starts spending his master's money after he's been given notice he's going to be fired. At the expense of his master, the guy starts watching out for himself and what he's going to do next. And when he's found out, he's congratulated, commended by, you know, the very guy he was putting the screws to, looking out for himself. He's set up as an example to follow. He's the hero. And you can see why this might cause a problem for Christian theologians, yes? Because one frustrated commentator asks while he was grappling with this parable, is it possible, could Jesus have promoted dishonesty? By telling a parable with such a rogue as a hero? Why would the master praise the steward for his unethical wheeling and dealing, which cost the master dearly? The steward pursues his own self-interest without any concern for his own integrity. Some have said, well, you know, the ends justify the means. He ends up helping the poor, and the Bible's about helping the poor. Problem is, there's nobody poor in the entire parable. In the brief period between his faithful meeting, his fateful meeting with his master, where he's given his notice, in the brief period between that meeting and his final departure, the crafty steward creates an opportunity for himself to put into action his plan for self-preservation. Quickly calls all of his master's debtors, probably many more than just the two examples. He calls in all his master's debtors and He makes them feel good about him, ingratiates himself to them, so when he gets fired later, they'll welcome into their homes. And he does it by spending his master's money, reducing the debt that he owes to his master, who's just fired him. He pretends he's still his master's agent. They don't know the guy's been fired. And he binds his master to incredible losses. And in spite of all this, the guy receives praise from his Lord. Say what? Are there any loan officers out there? Any loan officers in the room this morning? Or people, if you work in any sort of lending or debt collection or bank or business, does anybody out there and care to admit it? I just... <laughs> oh, we had it. They must all come to the 9 o'clock service because we had like 9 this morning. All right, well, imagine, just imagine, just imagine if a clerk at Wells Fargo or another bank, or a lending institution. Just imagine that tomorrow morning, first thing they do is they sit down at their desk and they find a list of the debtors, of all the debtors, business and residential. Why not? Finds them all and goes right down the list and on behalf of the bank, all by himself, all by herself, single-handedly calls everybody up, has them come in, rewrites all of the contracts significantly reducing what they owe the bank. Just like that. Just because. Now, what do you suppose is going to happen to that clerk when she's found out? Yeah. Is the clerk going to get promoted? Is the bank president going to come and say, Attaway, Jenkins. Good job. Way to be shrewd. Now everybody will love our bank. No, I don't think that's going to happen. What, I mean, that clerk today, probably going to spend some time in jail with some thinking time about what he's done. 
Well, that's exactly what the steward does. And he does it for personal gain, which makes it worse even than my illustration. As an agent of his master, and his master finds out about it and says, Way to go, Bob! You know, say what? And oh, the can of worms that this master's praise of this crooked steward has opened in commentaries over the centuries. You go back and read them, as I did many of them this week, and you feel in the interpretations the commentator's discomfort with this scandalous message, seemingly scandalous even to Christianity, that Jesus would, on the face of the parable, seem to commend dishonesty. And so many interpreters, and I don't, I don't really enjoy picking on them. They were just trying to explain it as I am too, but so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on them, but they're going to remain nameless this morning, okay? But so many of them try to explain the parable by making stuff up. They say things like, well... The debts that the steward reduced, he was merely backing out his own commission. What? Really? Where, 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 where do you see that? Or, it must be that the steward previously charged them too much for the loan, and now he's making it right, reducing it to the amount it should have been originally, kind of like Zacchaeus. So, 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 the, so the steward is acting righteously. Really? How do, you, how do you do that without absolutely tearing apart the parable on its face? Where exactly does the parable even hint at that? One commentator, this was one of my favorites, one commentator, I mean, their instincts are right. They know they've got to get to the place where Jesus doesn't promote dishonesty because it would be so inconsistent with Scripture. It's just their method of doing it. They make stuff up. This was my favorite. One commentator said, you know what? I bet I know what's going on here. This whole parable is sarcastic. It's complete. It's irony. Jesus means to be sarcastic throughout the whole parable, so he does, it doesn't really mean what it says. He's being clever. It means the opposite because it's ironic. Well, that certainly takes care of the problem. But on what basis, where in the parable or in its context do we even get a hint that Jesus means the opposite of what he says in the story? Still others make the master, still others make the master unrighteous or evil to sort of try to justify what the steward does. And on and on and on with these sorts of explanations that just feel like to me and my, they're making stuff up to get to the conclusion that they want. You know, it's interesting. Um, during this series on parables, uh, you all set a record. <laughs> every week, every week, there's maybe about, uh, I don't know, a couple dozen of you that email or write or bump into me and they say, hey, what parable are we studying this week? And this week, you all set a new record because, well, this week, I would answer the question, hey, we're studying the parable of the unjust steward. And, and, and everyone who asked me that in person just kind of looked at me like, which one? So I thought, well, maybe it's the title. The NIV calls it. It's the parable of the shrewd manager. Well, that didn't help. There's still a cloud over there. And you set the record this week for people who responded to me something like, 
hmm, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can remember exactly how that one goes. I need to read that again. Or, you know, how does that go again? And part of the reason, I think, that even people well acquainted with Jesus and his parables often have trouble remembering this one is it's just not taught very often. It's not put in curriculums. You're not going to find it often in your little, you know, coffee table Bible study. It tends to just sort of get ignored because people are uncomfortable with teaching it because what do you do with this scandalous problem of a dishonored, a dishonest steward being praised? <laughs> and then when you add to the fact that this thing talks about money, well, pastors at least, they really tend to bury it toward the bottom of their list of passages that they'd like to preach and get, you, you know, and get to. Now, the instincts, at least, of almost every Christian commentator, at least as I look for some continuity in what they're saying about this parable, their instincts at least are correct. Jesus is not promoting dishonesty. Of course not. Jesus is not suggesting that every ends are justified by every means or any means. He's not saying that, okay, so we should go and look out, look out for ourselves at the expense of our masters. That's how we should live. But while their instincts are correct, there's no need to destroy the parable or feel like you're making stuff up to reach those conclusions. So let's try. Let's try taking a look at the parable for what it is saying and let's not read too much into the shadow. Remember, that's the overall illustration I tried to give you or I've been giving you for this series. Parables are like shadows. You can tell a lot about something that's casting a shadow by looking at its shadow, but you can't tell everything. And parables are like shadows. We need to be careful not to overread the shadow, overread the analogy. If I said to you, for example, that a heart is like a pump, immediately you'd go, yeah, a heart is kind of like a pump pumps blood, right? But then you wouldn't also conclude that the heart is necessarily made of metal and you plug it in, right? That's not what the analogy is intending to present. So too with parables. First, you should know that the structure of this particular parable is especially important because your decision here on the structure will affect your interpretation. For example, many disagree where the parable ends. There are several options explored throughout the century, but I'll give you what I find most compelling. You check it out for yourself if you like, but of all the options out there, this felt the most compelling to me. The parable itself is verses 1 through 9. And then verse 8b gives us a concluding explanation. And verse 9 in application. Verses 10 through 13, the nearest illustration I could think of, is they work like an appendix on a book. They're part of the book, but they're also separate in some way. So verses 10 through 13 give us four sayings that are related to money. It's tied to the parable because Jesus and Luke, when he writes it, both are very careful to use similar words in 10, 11, 12, 13 that they use in verses 8 and 9. So it ties it together But it's really not part of the parable itself. It's an appendix to the story. Okay. If that's right, then verses 8b, the concluding explanation, and verse 9, an application, become the keys 
in interpreting and understanding the parable. Verse 8a ends the story portion of the parable. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then 8b gives us a concluding explanation. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Rather cryptic to our ears, isn't it? We'll look at that more in a minute. And then verse 9 makes an application. I tell you, Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And again, the translators in the NIV and other trans, uh, translations too, they're working hard. You can almost feel them working hard to smooth out that original Greek into English. But nevertheless, it still kind of comes across in English. I don't know. I've, I, you know. I read those things through so many times this week, but the first few times especially I read through, what in the world is going on? Right? You run, you, when you run into a passage like that, and even you know our best or our better English translations, you run into a passage like that, you can bet for sure there's some strange Greek behind it that uh, people are really grappling with and trying to express in English, and it feels like that a bit, doesn't it, in verses 8b and 9? Well, let's pick apart verse 9 a little bit more, and then we'll catch verse 8 after that. But verse 9... Three key phrases there that Jesus makes when he's applying this parable. First, what is meant by use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves? Supposed to buy yourself friends? Well, worldly wealth, the original Greek there is mammon of unrighteousness. There's mammon. Mammon includes our money but probably a broader um, definition of mammon. The technical theological definition of mammon would be our stuff. So stuff of unrighteousness, including money in the original Greek. And worldly wealth, the more I studied mammon of unrighteousness, worldly wealth doesn't quite, doesn't quite help us enough with what is meant by worldly wealth. What makes wealth worldly? I mean, followers of Jesus have money too. Is the money they have worldly wealth? They got it from the world. Is it world? What makes it worldly? Well, when you study that original phrase, mammon of unrighteousness, what makes wealth worldly or what makes mammon unrighteous is money's tendency to corrupt us. Its tendency to tempt us to do evil with our stuff because money is so easily put to wrong uses rather than right uses. Mammon of unrighteousness, worldly wealth, its tendency to corrupt us is in that phrase. So, in my opinion, a better English translation, or maybe at least to me it's a more helpful one of this first phrase in verse 9 might be something like this. Make friends, by your use of money, which is so easily put to wrong use. Or put yourself in a good position by good use of your money, which so easily leads you astray. Second, what's meant by when it is gone? 
In my opinion, a clear reference to the end of the age, not just when the money is literally gone, but when its usefulness ends. Or, and, and that's at the end of time, right? When money will be absolutely useless. Our stuff won't matter anymore. It'll be gone. And the end of the age in context seems to be the idea both in verse 8, where there are sort of two kingdoms of people talked about. We'll get to that in a minute. And the next phrase in verse 9 talks about an eternal dwelling, a a, a different age too. So when it is gone is talking about the end of, of this present age, in my opinion. Last, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Tabernacles is the original Greek word there. That seems a very clear reference to an eternal home with God. Be welcomed into eternity, be with God forever, which of course will be more fully realized by us at the end of the age. Now, by way of summary then, let me offer you this paraphrase of verse 9, which I hope is helpful to you. It can be paraphrased this way. Put yourself in a good position through good use of your money, which can so easily lead you astray so that when this age is over, God will receive you into his eternal dwelling. Put yourself in a good position through the use of your money, which can so easily lead you astray, so that when this age is over, God will receive you into his eternal dwelling. And if all that is correct, or close at least, then fundamentally this parable is about the wise use of money in view of the end of the age. What theologians call the eschatological crisis. It's a crisis when the world comes to an end and then begins again. Uh, People are going to notice that. Eschatological crisis. So, And that's when Jesus comes and returns to judge the living and the dead. To make everything right. So use money wisely. When you're using money, bring into your decision-making process, please, the fact that the world will end one day and one day the money will be useless. And especially in this parable, keep in mind that last day. Use money in a way that's consistent with your salvation as you work it out with fear and trembling. Your money, too, is part of what we work out. Its use is part of what we work out in fear and trembling in terms of securing our spot in God's eternal home. Now, I promised to try and bring verse 8b into the mix as well. So let me try. I'm going to do it by using you all as a visual aid. Everybody, you all want to be a visual aid? It won't make you stand up. Won't make you dance. Okay, well, you don't have a choice. You're going to be a visual aid today. We're going to divide the group into two. This group over here, okay, it's really easy. It won't make you do anything. Just just, just a visual one. This group over here, we will make the kingdom of this age. And they are then, as verse 8 calls you, people of this world. This group over here, we will talk in terms of you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The coming age, which is not yet fully realized, but the kingdom of heaven. And we'll call you people of the light. People of this world, 
people of the light. Two different kingdoms. Are you with me so far? Now, which kingdom does this parable take place in? Yes. Good. You didn't even need me to help you with that. Sorry. There's a master. And, you know, as long as we realize that not every parable, we don't have to make the master God in every parable. And in this parable, I don't think he is, at least not in total. The situation that happens is the allegory and not necessarily every character in it. So there's a master over here. And maybe you might, now you can say, well, maybe that master's not too bright. You know, you're fired, sort of. You know, go out there and look at all the books. You know, and then come back to me. Is that a sound business practice after you fire someone and trust them with all the books of your... But anyway, that's what happens over here. Now, the steward or the manager, he's faced with a crisis that's happening in the future. It's his eschatological crisis. If the eschatology is the end of his job in the beginning of something else. And in light of that, in view of that crisis that's about to happen, right? He does something. Now, what he does is dishonest, it's crafty, it's shrewd. But at least if the guy is out to preserve himself, to make sure he's okay after his job is lost, it's effective. He does something effective in this realm to secure his future. Now, just like the steward has a view for something happening in the future that he's worried about, his security, just like that, if a steward who's dishonest and has a master who's not very bright goes to this sort of elaborate thing to ensure his future, how much more, how much more will children of the light who have an absolute perfect master also be concerned about their eternal security in the future and will do something about it. Does that make sense? And I think that's what the parable is pushing. And yes, it's pushing it in terms of our money in particular. Because you know my illustration isn't perfect. There isn't a big aisle dividing the world of this age and the age yet to come, is there? Because Jesus tells us that in his coming, the kingdom of heaven is very near, so near it's here. There's an overlap. So even though we belong as citizens of the kingdom, we still use money. And it's money that the world uses too. But how will we use it? Will we use it wisely, meaning Will we use it in a way that's consistent with our salvation, consistent with that eternal security of what we want to secure forever with God as part of that salvific process of all of who we are, including how we use our money? And in my opinion, that's the punch of this parable. Use money wisely in view of the end of the age. When Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead, so that you will be sure to receive, as part of that process of working out your salvation, your eternal dwelling with God. 
Now, two complaints that come from that interpretation of the parable. Number one, hey, there's still a whole lot of self-interest going on here. You know, am I supposed to do that? Am I buying my way into heaven by using my money in a good way? It's the same question, really. Am I obeying to earn favor with God? I thought we were supposed to be selfless. Well, you know, there's legitimate self-interest, you know. I hope you have something to eat today. It's not selfish if you have something to eat today. Illegitimate self-interest is that which is very short-sighted, self-centered. Legitimate self-interest is interest from an eternal perspective. What do I mean? Jesus indeed calls us, calls us to radical self-denial, radical self-sacrifice. Why? Because only in denying ourselves do we truly find ourselves. It's self-esteem in Christ is proper self-interest. In other words, it's okay, more than okay, we need to be concerned about our eternal situation. Only a fool wouldn't be concerned about what happens at death or in the next age. That's not being selfish to be concerned about what happens for all eternity. Use money wisely in view of the end of the age when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead so that you'll be sure to receive your eternal dwelling with God. Another complaint, hey, that sounds like works-based righteousness. The only reason that sounds like works-based righteousness is because we've horribly distorted the relationship between faith and works. Good works flow from faith, or else it's not saving faith. Ask James. So using money obediently, all of our obedience is not earning salvation. It's responding, as we must, to God's love and grace. Obedience is loving God. It's his love language, remember? And he asks us to love him, obey him, love him, obey him, same thing biblically, with all our might. And this includes our money. Use money wisely in view of the end of the age when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead so that you will be sure to receive your eternal dwelling with God. And this brings us to today. You heard Kelly get up here and express to you the needs of our church, your church. The financial needs of your church, our church, present us with an opportunity to use our money wisely. One thing Jill and I are going to do, we're going to sit down with our kids sometime this week, and we're going to talk about what more can we give to the kingdom work that comes from our church specifically. And I want to talk about, with my family, Jill and I want to talk about with our family about moving that line even more Moving the line from living with what we want more toward living with what we truly need. And if you've ever tried to move that line, then you'll know that's a very difficult line to move. 
It's hard to move it. But hard economic times often call for hard responses. So we're going to have that conversation, and I invite you to do it too, individually and with your families. In fact, challenge you to do it. Exhort you to do it. Plead with you to do it. Talk about with your families, you know what? What is it that I truly need? And can I live closer to that line than the line of, well, what is it that I really want? And I'd consider, if you move the line with the money that's left over in the move, I'd, I'd, I'd ask you to consider that our church needs you. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you that or to ask you that. And literally, the countless people that our church reaches and all that God does through us need us too. Will you respond to the need? I'm excited because my experience with you these almost four years has been you always respond robustly, yes, we will, and you've always come through, and I know you will on God's behalf this time too. Will you use your money wisely in view of the end of the age when it's worthless anyway, when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead, so that not only you will be sure to receive your eternal dwelling with God, but so that others will too. These guys sitting over here in this kingdom. I'm just kidding. Will you use your money wisely so that when Jesus comes again to make it all right, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, that not only you will secure as part of that process of your salvation, eternal dwelling with God, but that through you and your use of money, others will secure in their process of salvation their dwelling with God too. Will you respond to that need? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know because you've seen throughout the centuries, even millennia, your people struggle with this strange, at least to our ears, parable of your son. And you know, Father, how uncomfortable it is for us to talk about obeying with our money in particular. Father, I just ask that you would give us a sense in these hard times that you would encourage us and walk with us and have us do the hard work of analyzing again individually and with our families and looking at what it is that we need versus what it is that we want and asking, Father, if we can give up some things that we want in these hard times so that your work can continue, so that your work can continue here as a part of our church or wherever it is, Father, that you have us invest our time, our talents, our gifts, including our money, that your work, despite hard times and even because of hard times, flourish all the more because your people are willing to give. They're willing to use their money wisely in light of the coming age as part of our process, Father, of 
longing for the day when you receive us into your eternal dwelling with you forever. Would you please, through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, ignite us with that passion and eagerness, yes, even with our money. Father, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction this morning, His good words. This one, this one comes from an old hymn that in the middle of the week I started humming because of all this focus on money. And see if it reminds you, as it did me, perhaps, of the message of this parable. I think you'll recognize the hymn, most of you. The hymn writer says, We give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be, All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. May we thy bounties thus as stewards true receive, and gladly as thou blessest us, to thee our first fruits give. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all, West Bowles. Have a great week.